Welcome to Essential Coaching Conversations with Kyle and Asim. The real, relevant, necessary conversations to help you navigate coaching, teaching, learning, and life. Coaches, coaches, welcome back. Episode 37, the Steven Strasberg episode. Here's hoping that Steven Strasberg has a smooth recovery from his 89th injury of his career, and we can actually see him on the mound for those Washington Nationals. Uh, Kyle, who's your shout-out for the day um, on 37? I'm going to go with the one and only Doak Walker. What a number 37. I'm going to go way throwback. back, but I'm I'm throwing it back to bring it to the now. Uh, and again, trying to keep it kind of in the alumni Louisiana tech family. Uh, we've had a, a great string of, of running backs that came through our program in recent years, Kenneth Dixon, um, Daniel Porter, Lenny Creer, Justin Henderson, that were all on Doak Walker list. So, um, Louisiana tech's got a great history of, of running backs. And so I, when we said 37, I was like, Oh, okay, yeah, let's, let's go that way. So that was just sort of a weird, um, sly way to shout out Doak Walker, but then also give some love to um, some bulldog running backs um, that I, that I that I've uh, you know grew up watching and, and been big fans of. And and uh, Boston Scott, uh, since we're name dropping here, was a, a speaker at one of my five star camps back when he was at Tech, and now he's off, you know, being the giant killer in the NFL. And so that's really cool uh, to see that. So yeah, I'm gonna go with Doak, the one and only Doak. That is, that's a pretty cool shot. I had no idea that Doak Walker wore 37. So you are, you got it, man. That's awesome. Um, as you can see, coaches, today we have a very controversial topic. Uh, coaches versus trainers. It's time to throw the gauntlet down and really dive into who's better, who does it better, which one doesn't need to exist. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. That is not what this episode is about. Title was titled that way on purpose to get you to click on it, to listen to it. And now that we've got you hooked, we hope you stick around for the conversation that we have about the relationship between coaches and trainers and subsequently that with coaches, trainers, athletes, and parents. And I think, you know, basketball has sort of been taken over by um, the Instagram trainers, and I think they get a lot of hate and some of them rightfully so. I think there's a lot of like misinformation out there and kind of like archaic technique stuff or, you know, and then like the next episode we do is going to be on skill versus technique and things like that. But for the purposes of this episode and Kyle, I'm going to throw it to you because this was given to us by one of our, uh, our loyal listeners um, via Twitter DM. And so it's sort of a mailbag episode because it was sent to us. But I think by and large, everyone's intentions are usually pretty good when it comes to the training and the coaching piece of it. I just think that there's just a lack of, in a lot of cases, a lack of a quality relationship that as we're going to talk about today, if we can hit sort of that sweet spot, it actually is like a beautiful relationship. And I know that I can share some stories about how that transpired in the programs in which I coached. Um, and also I think this is not just for, you know, like the middle school, high school athlete experience. I think this is also in college too. And really like starting to get into the pros with how many, like this proliferation of skill people um, that are working with pros right now. So I'm going to throw it to you, Kyle, introduce the topic a little bit further, and then we'll jump right into it. 
Yeah. Uh, thanks to coach, uh, Mendel, uh, MM basketball training, one of the many coaches, like I've, I've talked before getting to DM with on Mondays and, and kind of starting my week that way, interacting with a bunch of coaches and having these little side conversations and, um, and talking about the podcast as a, as a listener and appreciating the feedback that he was giving us. Um, you know, just kind of asking like what, what, what's going on in his world right now? What, what would he love to hear about? Um, and, the, you know, being able to, to essentially sort of bridge this gap between trainers and coaches. And, and there seems to be this, um, this, uh, I guess sort of contentious relationship you could say between coaches and trainers. And again, we're, we're obviously, you know, when we talk about these things, obviously there's context and nuance and everything. And so we generalize a little bit. Um, and, and again, it's the title of the episode is you know, coach versus trainer, but this is definitely not a like pick your fighter uh, situation where you have to be either or. Um, and I think if if there's one thing that we're very consistent about in a lot of the topics that we talk about is like it's it's we don't want to live in sort of this binary world of like yes or no, this or that. That a lot of things are spectrum based. That a lot of things are you know the the truth is somewhere in the middle. That both sides have you know, their, their value and both sides have their, their valid points and, and they're both, you know, sort of, you know, feeling slighted or griping about certain things. And they have, they have very legitimate reasons for, for all of that. Um, but at the same time, we're hoping that, you know, people that are in this industry in whatever capacity via coach or trainer, that you're in it for those quote unquote, right reasons. Um, and you mentioned uh, one of my favorite words and topics in this, you know, sort of before we started recording uh, and talking about the altruistic nature of this. And does that really exist? And one of the one of my favorite discussions from grad school um, in my IO psych major, one of the very first days I remember it was my uh, professor and my my advisor started the question with, you know, does does altruism really exist? you know, and, and sort of on this, this deep fundamental level that can we really be altruistic? And the idea, the point of it was that, no, it doesn't really exist because doing something for somebody else usually gives you this sort of warm, fuzzy feeling inside, which really means you're not doing it for them. You're doing it for you. And so I think that's, that's a kind of a, an interesting place to start the conversation as to why are we doing this? And we all say that we got into this business because we wanted to serve. We wanted to you know, make the the future leaders of of our, you know, of tomorrow in our country. And we want to make better husbands, fathers, wives, all those kinds of things. But at the end of the day, like everybody also has their own motive. And you're either trying to pay bills, you're trying to um, you know, make a name for yourself, you're trying to build a brand. And I think that's where if again, if I could just sort of generalize part of this riff between the coaches and the trainers, is that the coach is very like team program, we over me based, you know, trying to get all these different moving parts and pieces together. And so as a quote unquote coach, you're saying like, I'm leading this larger group bigger than the individual. And the trainer is largely training an individual and the trainer is more worried about building their brand and trying to expand and just get the next big athlete or whatever. But again, when we look at it, so our co- you know, coaches are doing the same thing. They're just doing it in a different context. Every coach wants the, the next best player that's going to win them a championship and you know, help build their resume so they can move up. We just finished 
you know, two March Madness tournaments, you know, on the men's and women's side, and then plus your division, your division twos and your division threes, all of these coaches are out here in sort of this dog eat dog world where they're trying to win and move up. You know, if you can, if you can sort of overachieve and become the the hot name at that right time, you're trying to move up. And that's where I feel like, you know, a, a coach and a trainer, uh, again, another one of my favorite words that you used, a symbiotic relationship here, tying into my, my biology background, a trainer can end up becoming extremely beneficial for you, the coach. And coaches then can become extremely be- beneficial for you, the trainer. And then you have some folks that live in both of these spaces where they coach and they train. And we're going to probably lean on a very like middle school to high school basketball centric, you know, space for this, but it doesn't mean that we're not talking about college or pro. And it also doesn't just have to be in basketball. I mean, we've got 10 year olds with pitching coaches, you know, in baseball, you've got kicking coaches for football. I mean, like there are obviously lots of different contexts for this. So hopefully even if you're outside of the basketball space and you're still with us, you know, five so minutes into this thing, you can start to glean from this. And and if you're out there in a different industry outside of basketball, please reach out and let us know because maybe it's a little bit different. Maybe that 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 player trainer relationship is different in baseball or football or soccer or gymnastics or even in, in an arts area of music. You know, you have your your band or your choir director, but then you have somebody that you know you work with individually. Maybe that we can learn something from a, from an art or a, a different discipline. Um, and, and sort of help build these bridges and relationships in the basketball world. Um, but I, I definitely think, especially with the growth of social media, trainers have become a, a, a hotter topic. Um, it's been easier to sort of network and get yourself out there. And, you know, with, with the use of social media, you can sort of show off your product um, much easier than you can as a, as a coach, because again, you just, you've got, you only need one player to train and get your name out there. Whereas and a, a, a contextual piece of like a running a program, that's going to be a much different thing. Mm-hmm. And again, it's not about uh, hopefully what we'll kind of get through um, throughout this episode and sort of expose here is that this is no different than any other thing we talk about. It's human component based, it's relationships. And at the end of the day, if there's a rift between trainers and coaches, it's not that a coach is 100% right and the trainer is 100% wrong. There's somewhere in between that we can have this middle ground. And at the end of the day, we want to work for a, a, a better, you know, and I won't even say a better tomorrow. We want to work for a better today. Like we mm. want a better now for the athletes that we work with. Cause at, at the end of the day, again, I think that's why, why most of us at least got into this in the first place. And, and that was, was for the, you know, the betterment and the service of, of student athletes. Well, so that leads into my first question. So I had written down a few questions to consider as we talk about the relationship between all these people that are trying to help people get better. And that question is, who are we here for? And I think, you know, when I, when I think about the answer to that question, the first answer is really simple, right? It's just what you said. It's the student athletes, the kid or kids who are signing up for this and who come out for the team and who make the team and want to be good at something. So if we start from that point of view where the kid wants to be good at something. Now, it may be that mom or dad like wants them to be good at something too so they sign them up for this, right? Like that's a totally separate issue that we're going to talk about a little bit later, but in in the grand scheme of things, 
the entire point, if we operate from this assumption that the reason that a player seeks out having a trainer is because they want to get better at the sport, that should be the first, like the foundational piece of anything that we're doing, right? So why are we here? Like, who are we here for? We're here for the kid who wants to get better. We all say this as coaches in our interviews, like, oh, I, you know, I want to help players become the best they can be. I want to guide them to playing in college if they want to, or being a professional or just making the team, right? There's all these different aspirations that people have. So if we're truly there for that kid or for that student athlete, then we need to be there according to their aspiration, not ours. Our aspiration comes from helping them fulfill their aspiration. And so I think about it in terms of like, you know, when I was a high school coach, one of my, my the, probably the best player I've ever coached, definitely the best point guard um, or best perimeter player I've ever coached, um, just played for a national championship at Christopher Newport as the starting point guard on, on their team, on the women's team. Um, she had a trainer. And he and I had a pretty good relationship. Like we didn't talk a lot. Like we weren't constantly texting back and forth or anything like that. But like I felt like he had a really good handle on all the skills we needed her to have and all the skills she was going to need moving forward in her career, especially being like four foot 11. Right. And people are probably thinking like, how old was she? She was in high school and you could watch her. She was just playing on CBS Sportsnet the other day for Christopher Newport. Like, She's a small guard, so she needed to increase her skill level pretty rapidly in order to dominate in high school basketball, go and play college basketball. And she did both of those things, and she continues to, right? So it doesn't mean that the relationship can't be there. But the reason the relationship was positive between myself and the trainer, and obviously with this student athlete, was that it was her driving that bus. It was her aspiration to be really, really good. And so she was able to not necessarily be the go-between. She didn't need to be the go-between because both of us as the adults in the room, like you like to say, realized what her aspirations were. And even if we te- you know, taught technique differently or we taught we had different verbiage or something like that, the baseline level of what we were trying to do was the exact same. And so I think when we think about like that second question, and I sort of alluded to it, it's what's relevant to the player's social and team role right now. And what I mean by social role is this. So as a high school athlete, there are some kids that are on a team just because they want to be on the team, right? Mm-hmm. They don't really have aspirations to play at a higher level. They don't really have aspirations to, you know, like if they're on the varsity and they don't play a lot, maybe they're okay with that. Right. So their social role is to be like the hype man on the bench, right? Or to be maybe be like the team captain, but they don't play a ton, whatever it is, right? There's a million different roles they can play socially. But then there's also the social role of, hey, that person's a baller and like they want to go and make something out of their sport. They are clearly the best player on the team and they want to continue to be the best player on the team. And then you have any number of things in between. And so if the adults in the room don't realize what that player's social role is and how they can help them accomplish either maintaining that role or if they want to change to a different role, they need to be able to ask those questions 
of themselves. Like, what am I doing that's relevant to helping them do this? And then does it serve the purpose for the other person that's involved in this transaction, whether that be the parent, whether that be the coach, and obviously with the student athlete, right? So if all parties involved are asking this question or these questions that we're sort of going through, I think it becomes a really fruitful relationship and a really fruitful experience for the young person that we've said we're here to serve. Yeah, those are two incredible questions to just start from in saying like, well, again, why are we here? What are you doing here? And I think, again, part of the, you know, this, this generation stuff that we hear about is that kids are lazy. They don't have competitive drive. They don't want to do anything. All they want to do is play Xbox and PlayStation and stay on their phones. And, you know, when I was a kid, I was out in the driveway constantly till the lights, you know, got cut off and all that kind of stuff. And then here you have a group of kids who are not playing PlayStation. They're not sitting on the couch watching Netflix. They're not, they're trying to get in a gym and they want to work on their game. And we sort of view this, um, you know, through some negative lens all of a sudden. And so we, we just kind of want to, you know, I, I guess we just want to complain about something to complain about something uh, in a lot of ways. And so we, we get mad that our kids don't want to work on their game. And then when they, they tell us that they do, we get mad at them because they don't want to work on their game the way we want them to work on their game. And that's a big issue here and, and why I think part of this, the, the contentiousness uh, between the coaches and trainers exists. And then from, from personal experience and coaches that I know, you know, you, you got a kid that wants to get in the gym, but you're busy as a coach, mm -hmm. like, all right, practice is over at five o'clock and they want to stay till five 45 and get some individual work in, but I got to get home. I've got to go to the daycare. I got to go to school. I got to go, you know, live my life. And I don't have the time to do that. Or I can't, maybe you coach 45 minutes, an hour away. I mean, I, I was amazed when we started essential coaching, a lot of our, our original coaches, how many of them don't live near their school mm -hmm. as a, as a guy who coached within minutes of every school that I've ever coached at, you know, max of 20 minutes. And sometimes I've lived seven, eight minutes away from my school. It was nothing to run up to the school, change mm -hmm. over the laundry, you know, do some work, like go home a little bit later because I know I can pop back up there on the weekends. You yourself ha have to drive a ton to get to and from your jobs. Um, 45 you know, there miles were a each way. Yeah. There were a lot of coaches that I, I didn't really think about that in other states. They're like, okay, you can't just get there. Mm -hmm. And so on a Saturday to be able to open the gym up for even just some pickup or even some individual work, that's a lot of capital. That's a lot of time. It's a lot of energy. And that's one more day away from your kids. It's one more day away from, you know, taking care of your house or your family, or even just self-care, like mm -hmm. even in the, in the season, out of the season or whatever. And that's where I feel like the sort of the darker side of this crops up because then people see that as an opportunity to strike where the coach across town can say, Hey, well, your coach can't get you in the gym. Come get in mine. Mm -hmm. Or that trainer who's associated with somebody, you know, an AAU program or something like that goes, well, if they're not going to care about you and your game, come over here. We'll make sure you get in the gym all the time. And I'm speaking, I mean, that that is 100% from experience. We can't get any of our coaches up there. The coach across town that wants to recruit your kid, well, give them a key to their gym. And they're trying to get them in, the, you know, get them in their gym to recruit them away from you. Mm -hmm. And that is is sort of the, the dark side, underbelly, definitely not altruistic, we're here for the kids type of situation. And I, don't, I only think it takes a handful of those to ruin a lot of that trust. 
it, you know, you can build up a great relationship with a lot of other coaches or trainers and it only takes one or two of those getting burned for you to be on your guard and be really worried about, well, you're all district sophomore point guard tells you that they've got a trainer across town who's associated with somebody else. And you get a little nervous because now you're thinking like, Oh, they're trying to recruit them. They're trying to steal them or whatever. And you've, you know, what do you do in that situation? Do you tell your kid, no, you can't go do that to which that might, you know, piss them off, piss their parents off. And now you've lost them anyway. Or like, and do so you it, even have the the right to do that? being at a public school, like you can do whatever you want, right? Like, right. I can't stop you from going here on right. the weekend and doing this. And so that might, that might even open up a conversation for another day about, um, sort of telling on yourself and the lack of recruiting that you're doing with your own current players. You know, if my relationship is so fragile with a current player that I'm afraid that if they go work out with somebody else, I'm going to lose them. Then, you know, maybe there's some other work that needs to be done mm -hmm. and some entropy that needs to be taken care of. But again, that, probably a conversation for another day. Um, but, but back to this original point, if we do have kids that want to get better and again, all, all we do is lament like how lazy everybody is. And he, well, here is an opportunity for that. Instead of looking at that as a potential enemy, as a potential problem or an issue, what can we then do to go out and recruit these extra stakeholders to bring them into the fold, to elevate that athlete's holistic experience. And then, oh, by the way, the better that player is, the better we're going to be. If I'm viewing that from the coach side of things and not, not, you know, just automatically choosing the trainer as the villain. Mm -hmm. And if I had to put, you know, some money on it here, I would say that that's the majority of the time is that the coaches are viewing that as something that could be detrimental to their program. And that's well, where the it snake comes back grass, to us, right? That's who the trainer 100%. becomes. And then we, as the coach say, well, we don't think that's great for that kid. But what we're really saying is that's not great for my program, because if I lose that kid, now I'm going to have a tougher time, you know, winning games. And so again, the, the altruism part gets kind of thrown out the window there um, because we get back to what we're all really after. And we all, again, we all have our own sort of stake and ego into this. And I know that if I'm a, if you've coached for any period of time, you know that better players make your job easier. You're more likely to win games the better players you have. And so again, where is that? As you said, where where is the sweet spot? How do we how do we find that sweet spot and recruit, you know, potentially recruit the the trainers, the parents, the athletes to create this holistic experience? And I think probably the easiest thing to to do is to have you a quote unquote trainer on your staff. Mm. that is available for this kind of stuff where they don't have to outsource that. But at the same time, you probably don't have the the position for that, the money for that, the the whatever. And if kids are willing to go pay 50, 100, 200, whatever for their personal trainer, again, what where is sort of how do you have the right to tell them that they they can't do that? Um right. and I, I it's 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 difficult. Everybody's everybody's um, situation is going to be different. Obviously I, I, I can almost see coaches in their cars right now going, well, I had this happen to me and mm -hmm. well, I had that happen to me. And well, this guy did that and that woman did this. And again, it's, it's all going to be a little bit different, but if you, if we boil it back down to, again, the foundational pieces of all of this and, and, and a great start is simply just to ask what those questions are, or the two questions that you started with. And then I think moving forward, going into this this role definition and role projection that you talked about um 
with me in that pre-show and trying to figure out like from an athlete centric point of view, what is it that this athlete needs? What are they not getting here? What can they be offered over here? And then again, how does that tie into, you know, the overall scope of what it is we're trying to accomplish as a, as a high school varsity program, as it may be. So, you know, there's a couple of things that come to mind and I think, you know, there's, there's always going to be an onus on the adults in the room to help young people make the next best decision. And you, I mean, y'all who've listened to us already know that like our entire sort of being is about making the next, next best decision and helping athletes, whoever coaches on and off the playing surface to do that. So I think moving into sort of how we get to the role definition and things like that, I think the first thing we have to discuss and like, I don't even know if it's necessarily a discussion. I think it's more of just a statement of fact that this whole thing as a coach, speaking from the coaching side, this whole idea of like, well, trainers are taking my job. Trainers are doing something I don't want them to do. Like this whole thing puts an onus on you as the coach, right? The high school or the college coach to actually have a development plan and philosophy. If you don't have one and you're just like, okay, we run this offense, we do this, you know, we run these set plays, this is how we defend. But like, you don't have an individual development plan for every single player in your program or not even, let's not even go that deep. Let's say just for every role in your program. If that doesn't exist, something has to fill the void because there's going to be an unrequited feeling of, I'm not getting any better in this program. And we're seeing this kind of across the board. And we've talked to a lot of our EC fam, talked to, and this is across divisions in college. This is across, you know, this is transfer portal stuff. Like I'm not getting any better here. I'm just like chilling. And yeah, we might have workouts every now and again, but nothing really seems to make sense. I don't know. Maybe I, I put in a lot of effort and I'm at these workouts, but my role doesn't seem to change. Now, I know there are going to be some coaches that are like, well, kids, this kids, that yeah, totally understood. Right. We're not absolving kids from any of that responsibility, but I do think that it's very important that if you haven't put it together, like put something together and show it to the kid and say, listen, I have taken the, like the initiative I've taken, I've put the onus on myself to develop this plan for you. And the best way to do that would to be in conjunction with you to say, Hey, what do you want to get better at is what you want to get better at what we need you to get better at. All right, cool. If those two things are aligned, you may not need me to do that. Especially if like you're spending, you know, the summer at home, you are, you know, you're willing to pay for whatever, like, listen, not going to knock anybody's hustle. But if all of that stuff exists and we have this aligned plan and this philosophy of development for that player, doesn't it stand to reason then that you could just take that and give that to the trainer and say, hey, this is what my coach says I need to work on. I agree with my coach and I would like to pay you to help me work on these things. How much different is that conversation than, oh, this is what my coach says I need to do? Right. And we've all been in that situation where like, 
the kid comes back to you and is like, oh, my trainer doesn't want to do that. So we're doing something else. It's so much more powerful when, hey, my coach and I created this plan for me together. And I would like you to help me to do that. Are you able to do that? So then that puts the onus on the trainer to, to be honest with themselves and to sort of rock her through that plan and say, ah, man, I don't know if I can do these things. Or maybe I can, but I don't know what this terminology is. Maybe I should talk to your coach and we can figure it out. Why don't the three of us sit down and let's talk about all of these things and I can get a better idea of what they're looking to do. So now we're teaching that student athlete to collaborate with people. We're teaching them to advocate for themselves. And we're not, as you said, just villainizing the skill trainer for going off and doing their own thing. You and I have talked about this before. When people go off and do their own thing, I think we talked about this probably like five episodes ago with like, oh, just give it your best shot. Whatever you want to create, create it. You remember what I'm talking about? Like with doing graphics, they're like, oh, I just want something, you know, whatever. Okay, well, when you come with no plan and you come with no specifics on exactly what you need for that player to get better, that's what's going to happen. People are going to assume, okay, well, they want them to get better at coming off of a screen. Here's how I'm going to teach them how to do it. But maybe they have a different way of doing it. I can still teach them my way so long as I know that what I'm doing is productive to and going back to their social and team role right now. So those things need to be defined. And they need to be agreed upon by the parties involved. So then that puts the onus on the athlete to understand what's going on. And finally, and this is where I think every coach's favorite group of people get involved, it puts the onus on the parent to be communicating with all parties. The parent's the one paying the trainer, more than likely. The parent is the one who is probably maybe driving the kid to the trainer and maybe to practice with their high school or their co- or probably not in college. So at a certain point, the parent also needs to be involved in exactly what's going to happen moving forward for these next three months over the summer as my child tries to improve their social and team role and I'm shelling out all this money for this to happen. I'm not sure and Kyle, correct me if I'm wrong. Let's obviously we'll turn it into a conversation here. I'm not sure the depth of those conversations really happens more than, and this is made up statistic, like maybe 10% of the time. Yeah, it's it's good, better, best. I think most situations, no conversation is happening. But, you know, coaches probably have kids who who are being trained. They don't even know that they're being trained. That's probably step one. No doubt you've about got, it. Yeah. Then you've got coaches who have kids who are being trained and they know that they're being trained, but they don't know by whom or who mm-hmm. with, you know, they get with a couple other kids or maybe the, the quote unquote trainer is just a dad, mm-hmm. you know, who's interested in their kid getting better and they don't think that their coach knows what they're doing. So they're like, oh, okay, well, I'll get three or four of the kids from the neighborhood in the gym or in the driveway or we'll go. Have that happened to me? Or the YMCA and dad then becomes the trainer. And so now we're getting even into a, a more entropic, uh, contentious issue here, because that's going to eventually boil over that unfinished business will, will eventually rear its ugly head. And so having no conversation, I think is, 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 you know, having at least some kind of a conversation is obviously better than none. And so then it's looking through that, that good, better, best, um, continuum of how do we continue that? And obviously I think 
you know, a, a coach, a parent, and a trainer, and a, a player sitting in a room together and talking about their development, that would be amazing. Mm-hmm. But how often is that happening? Don't have the time. It, that's yeah. that's taken away from this, taken away from that. Like, how do we sort of go from that one extreme of what we might see as the idealized version versus the other extreme, which is the most detrimental? Where can we sort of meet it in the middle? And then again, sort of getting closer to the, you know, the idealized version, the better. Um, but again, I, I think it just comes back to like, why are, I keep just coming back to like, well, why are we doing this? What are we training? What is the, what is um, sort of the, the, the point um, to all of this? And uh, the other sort of education side of me is just sort of thinking out loud now as to like, what does training even mean? Mm. What does training mean to a trainer? What does training mean to a coach, to a player, to a parent? What does a parent think they're paying for? A lot of times it's, man, my kid really sweat a lot in the hour that they were with that person. They deserve all my money. Honestly, like those are the things that have been said in the past about, oh, that trainer's really good, man. They're just, they're just so beat afterwards. Like they really work them hard. I'm like, did they get better? I don't know. They were were exhausted. They did because the trainer told them they got better. Mm -hmm. Why does a trainer, why, why are trainers overly complimentary of how much better their players are getting? Mm -hmm. Because it means that the trainer is doing the work. You're going to pay me $200 to work with your kid. Hell yeah. I'm going to tell you they're getting better. Certainly not going to tell you they're getting worse because I want another $200. Mm -hmm. And then I want you to go tell three friends. And now all of a sudden I'm in business. And so uh, that's another part to this is like, how open is the feedback that you're getting from people that are working with your athletes, or if you're a parent with your kid, are you hearing as many or more weaknesses as you are strengths? Are you, or then are you sort of eyeball tests? Are you seeing some of that development? Cause you and I have shared personal stories of kids that we had a really difficult time coaching because their parent kept saying, well, then when, when they're with you, they get worse, but when they mm-hmm. go with the trainer, they're getting better. Well, the, with the trainer, they're beating a cone or a bag, you know, and as, as Bruce Lee would say, boards don't kick back. So of course they're getting better. Maybe they're getting better at that drill or they're getting better in that particular context. But when it comes to fitting in a game context within the, the holistic, you know, they're, they're one small piece of a holistic system or they actually have a better player standing in front of them trying to stop doing all the things they're being trained to do, life is inherently going to become more complicated mm-hmm. for them. And that's, again, that that's sort of teasing the conversation for next time about, you know, skill versus technique and, you know, technique versus environment and games-based approach and all that stuff, which we'll get into a little bit later. But where I kind of want to ask you and maybe drive this this conversation now is the definitions of what it is that we're actually doing. And so if, could I, could I tweak this conversation or shift this conversation if we changed it simply from saying we're training because training to me means I'm going to sweat that when I hear that word, I think like, I need to get on a treadmill. Mm-hmm. I need to do some burpees. I'm going to go do some CrossFit. I'm going to run. I'm going to sweat. But am I developing? Mm-hmm. Are my skills increasing? Am I actually adding tools to my bag? Am I actually, you know, uh, improving upon decision-making 
So do, do does the conversation, I'm sort of asking out loud here, does the conversation shift if instead we say we're instead saying, I'm going to go train today, I'm going to go develop today because development to me equals learning. And so learning therefore means you're not a trainer as so much as you are an educator, you're mm-hmm. a teacher at that point. And so, it, and, and again, I, I'm not in the training world. We know some, some really great coaches that are trainers. And again, feel free to sort of um, shore up where my, my blind spots and my ignorance might be here. But is, is the trainer a content creator or mm-hmm. are they an educator? Is it their job to develop stuff for you to do? Or is it their job to take the plan that that player has from their coach and then be able to produce on that? And I think that's a great question to sit back and ask, especially if you're trying to decide, like, do I want this person or that person working with my kid? Is it their job to create drills and just stuff for them to do to get tired and sweaty? Or do they have sort of this masterful capability of taking the curriculum that's in front of them and then actually developing and, and, and showing some actual learning and growth from the athlete? Very long-winded, loaded question, but I'll look forward to <laughs> your answer. So I think of it in terms of where the focus is. So if I'm going to go train, it's very possible that I might just run around for an hour and like feel like I got trained or like even with a a quote unquote personal trainer, like they're going to focus on some part of your body or we're going to focus on technique in a lift or something like that. Right. I think when we talk about development, I think development is not just focused, but it's planned. And I hesitate to say that trainers don't have a plan because I think generally like most of the good ones do. Um, Where I think some of that gets muddy is, is that plan the same Let's say you're going like once a week or twice a week. Is that plan the same? And does it build upon itself like a curriculum or a scope and sequence would versus is it, yeah, I have this thing planned, but I'm just kind of like throwing out random drills to do. And like you might get marginally better at all of them. And thus you got better by working with me. And I think I've been on both sides. Like, I think I've worked with enough coaches in my life and enough parents in my life and just kind of like been around enough to where I've seen both things. So I think about like our work with Playmakers. Playmakers builds upon itself. There's levels, there's a curriculum that makes sense. It's all vetted, it's researched, all of those things. And we're constantly trying to see if we can do it better. Whereas I think if you were to walk into a training session in your local YMCA, your local rec center, wherever, I mean, you just go to a court and somebody's being trained. And then you saw that same kid be trained two weeks later. Would you be able to recognize how they ramped the training up or down based on the results that they were getting? Which is what I think an educator does, right? We scaffold things. We sort of spiral review things. I think practice planning, you know, like if you're a really good coach and like you're good at practice planning, 
there's a lot of that. It's not just, okay, well, we're going to play this variation of one-on-one today because this is what I saw on YouTube, you know, or like, we're going to do this drill and I'm going to copy and paste the YouTube link and put it on the digital practice plan that I send to the team. So I don't have to explain it because I actually don't know what's going to happen. I just saw it on YouTube and it looked really good because Mike neighbors did it. You know, I think there's, there's levels to all of those things. And so I guess like in a way, yes, we can call them developers if they are taking the educator's approach of putting all of those things in some sort of scope and sequence. And like, even I think about like, you know, if I were to be a, a trainer, right. I wouldn't, first of all, I wouldn't do anything one on O. Like I wouldn't have just one client in the gym. We would need at least three people in the gym. But based on that development plan that we would have discussed with the coach, it would be up to me to go through and figure out the progression for how to get those skills to translate to the game and the the scope of what they are going to have to do not what they're going to have to do just with me. And so I think it takes a little bit more nuance than just like, yeah, I played at a high level. So obviously I know how to, you know, skill train or coach or whatever. Like that's not a thing. I think in 2023, if that's what we're still assuming works, I think it's like a false, a false thing. Um, But I think that's where a lot of trainers get their start is, yeah, I played, I was all this, all that come train with me and you're going to get better. Yeah, you might get better. But if we're thinking long-term athlete development, I think, yeah, you you absolutely have to think as an educator. You have to think as a teacher and understand that the long-term athlete development takes precedence over what can I do in this next 45 minutes training you to make you feel like you got better. And how do we then have metrics that say, yes, you did get better. So, you know, you went from being a 30% shooter to a 45% shooter in games. You went, you know, this, it's like a longer term thing than just in a six week period. You went from being able to run the length of the court in five seconds to the length of the court in 4.8 seconds. Right. I don't think you got marginally faster. I think your thumb was just faster on the stopwatch. Um, so I, I don't know. Like, I think that there's, there's multiple ways to approach that. And I just, I, I, I hesitate to say that all kind of like throwing spaghetti at the wall is bad. Cause I think that's also how you learn, but I think there has to be some sort of focus and some sort of plan for how I'm going to train somebody based on the roles that they are being asked to play. And then I think you've got to continue that. So it's focused, it's planned, but then what's and and what's next, right? Like, let's say we get better at something. Have we maximized that? Is there a way to sort of get that 1% better one more time over this? Or do we need to, you know, tweak and manipulate that plan a little bit? Does what is, is what we got better at over the last two weeks, is that open the door to something else mm-hmm. that allows us to explore even more? Like if we're very foundational, we can't get to certain things until we get this done. All right. Well, if if we if we sort of have that done, can we scaffold things? And that yeah. that right there brings me right back to the educator, mm-hmm. right? Like I don't have just one version of this drill or three different versions of something over there. I've got layers to all of these things. And again, to sort of like within the playmakers realm, within the the curriculum of of those those drills and games, 
most of those, if not all of them, aren't just like one-time things. Mm -hmm. There's a number of different things that we can do and we can take that same drill or that same game and play it and apply it with five and six-year-olds who have never held a basketball. But then we could turn around and play that same game with 10, 11, and 12-year-olds who are marginally skilled or have, you know, at least four or five years of experience because they started out as five and six-year-olds. And then even when you go work these, you know, select events working mm. with, with upper high school or even like college kids, again, I can take the same thing. Hey, and the struggle is real. Like it, those elementary type things, the struggle is real for even the high school and middle school players. Right. And so like, to your point, the layers don't have much to do with like the age of the player. It's literally where they are right now in their skill level. And if we don't have an objective way to look at that. And we're just like, all right, we're just going to go to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. Those players aren't actually getting better. Yeah, because then it comes down to your, also your ability to assess where they are on that Goldilocks continuum. Is it is it above their threshold? Is it below? We're talking about the engagement and motivation piece of this. You know, if they're if they're bored, the challenge is likely not enough. If they're frustrated, it's likely a little bit too much. Do we need to dial it up? Do we need to dial it back? All right, well, we've done this thing. Now it's time to move on to something else. But also, I want to build some confidence too. So we might have to dial things back just to give them a little bit of confidence to keep them going. You kind of have to dangle the carrot in front of the horse in some instances. And so now we're not just becoming educators, we're becoming psychologists too. We've got to be able to understand the motivation and the engagement behind um, you know, that, that person and that individual and then that client, even if you are working with them individually, a new client's going to walk mm -hmm. in in the next hour and you're going to have to be able to adapt on the fly for that particular person. And right. if you do have three or four people in the gym, yeah, you don't have a full team, but you're still not just training that one person. You're training a group within a context. And it 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 in some ways that makes things obviously more complex, but it also to me that's a that creates commonalities between the quote unquote coach and the trainer. You're essentially doing the same thing at that point. It's just in two different contexts. And I, I just have a very hard time trying to get my mind away from your ability as an environment creator mm -hmm. and your ability to understand the ecological system that you live in and the human component behind each of the individuals that you're working with. And if you happen to be really, really great at that as a quote unquote coach, great. If you happen to be really great at that as a quote unquote trainer, great. You both can exist in that space and guess who ultimately ends up benefiting from these things. It's the student athlete. Mm -hmm. It's the person that you got into the business wanting to help. It's it's the person that you say you wake up every day excited to work with, to serve, to get better. And I feel like if that's where everybody is is you know sort of coming from, and we don't a view the them as as uh, just sort of like the the villain opposition then we can start to utilize each other, lean on each other, and ultimately make our jobs and our lives easier because everybody is going to benefit sort of an all, you know, a, a rising tide lifts all boats kind of metaphor. Um, and so I think that it's, it's obviously very difficult. Um, it takes 
everybody. It takes everybody being willing to set some of that ego aside, to ask those questions, to go through their own Raka processes, to do the reflection work, to raise their own awareness and build the clarity around what that athlete actually Mm -hmm. wants and needs. And then creating, if we can get to a point where all of these different stakeholders are walking sort of hand in hand in this aligned movement, now we're getting to the congruence that we talk about. We're reaching success, both for me as the coach, you as the trainer, them as the as the the athlete. And then again, if you imagine, and, and this is where I feel like our, you know, like the playmakers movement, this is not just a one session um, you know, point of view or a one league point of view. Like we have five, 10, 15, 20 years worth of vision built into mm-hmm. this, that it's not just about like your kid today. It's that kid then becoming a better coach or a trainer for the next generation, creating that next connection and creating the generation exponential generational change that we're talking about. And, and if, if anybody out there still listening to this episode is like, if we can all sort of have this conversation together, then we're much more likely to, again, to sort of move hand in hand down that road towards that exponential generational change or, you know, just holistic congruence. If you want to, you know, sort of stick with the EC vocabulary, but that's ultimately what we're trying to achieve. And I'm, I, as a coach, am going to be much more likely to get there if, you know, the trainer and the parents and everybody else is on board with me. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, I think, I think not to belabor the point, but, you know, we mentioned the sweet spot earlier and I just want to come back to that so that we can sort of tie a bow on, you know, we've talked sort of about the deficit mentality of like trainers can't do this or coaches can't do that or players can't do this. And I think to offer maybe a, a, a visual sort of like understanding of what the sweet spot for all of this could look like, you know, if you imagine that there are four circles and they're like sort of a Venn diagram and there's going to be a small sliver where they all overlap, that's the sweet spot. So the four, you know, the sort of the four stakeholders are, you know, the coach, the athletic, the, the skill trainer, the athlete and the parents. Um, and so I think if where those things overlap, and this is a, a, a nice little way to remember that this is a shout out to Tommy Verdell, like as a skill trainer, you can stitch your niche, right? You can find your niche. You can stitch your niche by figuring out where that overlap is. What's that sweet spot. And so in my mind, the sweet spot is number one, absolute role definition from the coach agreed upon by the player and the parents. So there's some co-design to that role. Role projection, which is really going to be a commonality between the player, the trainer, and the coach to sort of sit down and say, all right, right now you are this, you have aspirations. We'll talk about aspirations here in a second. You have aspirations to be this. We can project your role next year as being this. And then seeing where the players' aspirations fit into that, and you mentioned it just now, but that requires a ton of clarity and alignment. And it's literally a matter of making the next connection and coming in prepared to have that conversation first with the coach and the athlete, and then bringing the trainer into it, and also bring the parents into it to say, 
hey, this is what you're spending your money on. These are the results you can expect. And this is how it's going to help, you know, little Johnny or little Jenny in the future based on the aspirations they have and the roles that we are designing because this is how we want to play here. And these are the things we need them to be able to do. Is that all they're going to learn? Maybe, maybe not. But if that's the minimum of what they learn, great, because we're going to be in a much better spot and their player, their child is going to come in with more confidence, more belief, and that moves their efficacy. They're going to be more engaged and motivated because they know that all the adults in their life that care about this social role are there to help them improve, which is the whole thing we started with at the beginning. Um, you know, and then being able to sort of ask the question, and this is where the sort of the overlap is between the parents and the kid. Like, why do I need a trainer? Have I ever seen this person in action? Is all they're going to do for rebound is all they're going to do rebound for me and just say, good, good, good over and over and over again. How many props are they going to bring to make themselves look like they're doing something? Like, are they just putting me on Instagram to grow their business? And this is something we talked about in the pre-show, but like, is the trainer trying to get the bag while adding to my bag and bag of tools, which you mentioned earlier too, like that I may not ever use. And so I think it's then puts the player, like sort of the responsibility solely in the player and maybe in the coaches overlap and like the parents overlap to really understand what the coach's philosophy is and how you actually improve. So we'll talk about this in the next episode, but motor learning context opposed reps, film, reps without reps, et cetera, et cetera. Like, how do I actually build a skill? How do I actually build character, right? The repeatability of those positive habits. How do I actually do that? Is the trainer understanding of all of those things? And does that fit into the niche of what we're talking about, into that little sweet spot that overlaps in all four of these places? Um and then I think this is kind of a silly question, and I'll throw it to you to sort of close us uh, on this and whatever closing thoughts you have. And this is, it's so funny because we were talking about this in the pre-show about, you know, a kid who I was helping with their shot and, you know, they were saying like, my trainer, this, my trainer, that. Has your trainer ever actually watched you play? Like, have they actually sat down and watched you play? Not from a mindset of, I need to fix whatever goes wrong but from a mindset of how do I teach them to do this better? And that speaks to exactly what you were talking about, about the education side. So I'm going to throw that to you. I know that was a lot, but I think finding some of those things in that sweet spot can really help with affecting positively the, the experience that our young people are having. And it may even lead to less of this idea that like, I don't get along with my coach or my trainer and my coach are always fighting. I'm getting mixed messages. There's no clarity, blah, 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 because I think kids have so many other options now. It's just easier for them to leave the sport altogether. So I'm going to throw that to you and you can, you can take us out here, my man. Yeah. Well, again, I, I think you just sort of, again, it comes back to the clarity and the alignment part. And it's it, one of these great questions of like, how far do you want to take this? You know, if you, if you want to work with my kid as a trainer, how far are you willing to go to help develop them? Because again, if it's just somebody that's going to rebound, like I can do that for them, um, you know, that then if from the the flip side of that, what is the coach doing to evaluate the training that is being taken place? And so now we've gotten to, again, I think part of like the, the, and then some, the next piece, the, 
the evaluative piece. How do we know what we're doing is working or not working? How are we going to pivot? Because these, these plans are fluid and dynamic. If we're just looking at these things as like linear check off the box kind of things, then it's not really a plan, right? We're just doing something in succession to say that we did it. We're not a part of the, again, that holistic development part that again, hopefully that we're all, um, you know, sort of in the, in the race to do this for. Um, and so I think that the next part of this conversation where we can take this next is to then get into a little bit more of the nitty gritty of what are we actually training and what are we training for? And so if a coach wants to talk about what they're going to, that, that plan in place that you talked about, or if a trainer is going to want to come watch a coach, and then how does a parent sit back and see both sides of these things from the coach and the training perspective to know that, again, they're sort of getting their money's worth over here, but they're also understanding the experience that the kid is having. And then we've, we've sat here for probably close to an hour and we've hardly talked about the kid's actual experience where their feet actually are and what they're taking in the feedback that they're getting and all of the, 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 the mixed signals and the messages that you said, the, the potential paralysis by analysis here for the actual athlete. And just because we start quote unquote training, do they want it? Do they want to continue it? You know, where is their autonomy, their independence, their voice, their choice in this? Did they get to choose what they're working on? Did they get to choose whether they want to extend it, continue it or discontinue it? And I, I think that's another, another part of this where the, the, the person's voice who's often lost within this is the player themselves. Um, and so I think if we could tease this up a little bit, how do we then take this, um, you know, clarified and aligned vision and then get into the, the weeds of what are we actually training for? Can we start to define what some of these things are? Kind of what I asked a minute ago, like what actually is training? What are skills? What is technique? What is our foundational philosophy of how we go about training, developing, teaching, and learning. And I feel like if we can start to answer some of those questions, that's us going through the first half of that wheel and reflecting and raising the awareness to now we can start gaining the clarity and then eventually the alignment.